for many, many different times over the last two years, I've had a conversation with different people, different non-believers, different new believers, even people that have been walking with Jesus for a long time that begins something like this. I want to read the Bible, but I don't know where to start. I want to read the Bible, but I don't know where to start. And I understand where that's coming from, because this book is over a thousand pages long. It's got poetry, prophecy, stories, letters, all mixed together in there. So I understand where that feeling coming, comes from. I want to read the Bible, but I don't know where to start. And if that's you uh, today, I just want to encourage you. I think that we're at a place right now as a church where now is a perfect time to learn what it means to read the Bible. Because for the past two and a half months, we've been walking through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And if you've been here, if you've been tracking with us, you have thought through verse by verse the entire book of 1 Thessalonians. You've got a really good foundation of that book. Frankly, a book that's really, uh, really straightforward in comparison to a lot of other books in the Bible. So if you want to read the Bible and you don't know where to start, and that's the way you feel today, I encourage you this week, take 10 minutes, read the book of 1 Thessalonians. I think you'll be so blessed by that process. Hey, even if you have been reading the Bible for years, take a 10 minutes this week and read the book of 1 Thessalonians. I believe that the Spirit will reveal himself to you afresh as you approach the Word of God on your own. So that was just a quick encouragement because um, it has been such a blessing to me to study this book. So I want, I want you to have that same joyful experience yourself. But now we're in the book of 2 Thessalonians. And the question I, I want to ask as we begin 2 Thessalonians is this. Why is there a second letter? Wasn't the first one pretty good? I liked the first one. <laughs> why, did John, why did Paul write a second letter? Because it's funny. As we look into the book of 2 Thessalonians, we realize Paul is talking about a lot of the same themes, a lot of the same things. The first book of Thessalonians was written to address the situation that the Thessalonians were in. They were suffering, so he writes to give hope and encouragement and comfort to carry on in this Christian life, even in the face of persecution. And the thing is, the Thessalonians are still in the exact same situation. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly the situation that the second letter was written into, but we can assume from what we find in the second letter that something like this happened. That Paul heard an update of what was going on with the Thessalonians. That they were still walking with Christ, but at the same time, they were still suffering. They were still struggling with persecution. Uh, Jews and, and, uh, and pagans and political leaders were still oppressing them for their faith. Also from looking at the second book of Thessalonians, we can tell uh, that people in the church still had a lot of confusion about what this day of the Lord thing is. I, I'm sure that you guys feel the same way. It's a confusing thing. What is the end of time going to look like? And then thirdly, from looking at the book of 2 Thessalonians, we can tell that Paul realized that he has to give a little extra emphasis to one problem that's been showing up in the Thessalonian church, and it's this, laziness, idleness, basically mooching. As we look at the second book of Thessalonians, Paul is giving extra emphasis to this issue in the church, because it seems that people in the Thessalonian church are relying upon one another to the point where their laziness is being a burden on the community as a whole. So over the next three weeks, we're going to do that, looking at chapter 1, chapter 2, and then chapter 3. This week, chapter 1, hope and encouragement and suffering. So that's where we're going to be. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive into the first chapter, looking at verses 1 through 4. Heavenly Father, this, this book um, is just 
to be inspired by you. Because of that, because we know you are good and you are trustworthy, we know that every single word in this is from you, that we can trust it and hold it as authoritative over the way we live and what we believe. And Father, this, this first chapter, it's, it's so rich, but Lord, we ask that there is something in it that you have for each and every single one of our hearts. Something that we need to hear this morning, be encouraged by this morning, be challenged by this morning. And so Father, I pray that as, as we walk through this, this first chapter, and as we think about it, I pray that anything that I say that is not helpful would be completely ignored. <laughs> and anything that comes straight from you that you have for us today, that we would hold tight to that it would ring in our ears as we're leaving. So, Father, speak to us today as we look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1-12. through 12. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So over the past two and a half months, we've seen over and over again in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul's love for the Thessalonians. He pours out a deep deep love for the church to the point where sometimes it, I almost feel like it's embarrassing, <laughs> like a mother or father gushing over his kids. You see Paul's love for the church like a mother, uh, nurturing, comforting, caring for this church. You see Paul's love like a father, urging and exhorting and, and urging them on to look more and more like Jesus Christ. In fact, as we look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we hear Paul use this expression, do so more and more. That's one of the main themes of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Do so more and more. You're doing well. Keep going. You're loving each other. Great. Do so more and more. You're caring for each other. Great. Do so more and more. I think that's one of the amazing things that as we come to this second book, right at the beginning, Paul is saying this. Your faith is growing. Your love is increasing. That's what we're seeing here in these couple of verses. And so it seems that the Thessalonians received the teaching from Paul, received the encouragement from Paul, and obeyed it. They are doing so more and more. They are walking in love. They are seeking Christ in the way that they live. And so Paul is overjoyed. And so as we come into verse 3, we see Paul is praising God for this. He's thanking God for what he's done amongst the Thessalonians. And in verse 4, he is boasting about them. Let's look in verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you, in the churches of God, for your steadfastness and faith, in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So Paul is boasting in their steadfastness and trials. He's boasting in their growing faith, and he's boasting in their increasing love. In other words, what Paul is boasting about is the fruit that he sees in their lives. We hear and we talk about a lot the fruit of the Spirit. That means when we accept Christ and we receive the Holy Spirit, Spirit works in us, in us, to grow love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, to grow us up into the type of people that God desires for us to be. As God changes our heart, we naturally live in this way. This is the fruit of the Christian life. This is what Paul is boasting in. Uh, a couple months back, I was at a, a baptism service, and at this baptism service, 
I think there were seven people getting baptized, and every single person who got baptized got up, and they gave a testimony of what the Lord had done in their life, about how the Lord had led them to the place where they were, where they put faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The people getting baptized that day were everywhere from 7 to 40, 50 years old. And I just remember the first person got up, they shared their testimony, and I cried like a baby. It was at a backyard pool, and it was just, it was a beautiful thing because the next person got up and shared their story, and I told myself, keep it together, you got this, and I cried like a baby. (laughs) I I was like robbed. Every single person (laughs) who got up there to share their story, I cried like a baby, and I couldn't help it. Rob knows what I'm talking about. And the amazing thing about that story is that when they got up there to share their testimony, we weren't rejoicing in anything that they had done. What we were truly rejoicing in is what God had done. They were a picture of God's might. They were a picture of God's strength. And so standing there today, that day, hearing their testimonies and then crying, it was because we were worshiping together. We were worshiping together as we were looking at this amazing picture of what God had done in every single one of their lives. And so as Paul shares this testimony of what God is doing in the Thessalonians, he's encouraging the other churches throughout the area, worship with me. Worship as we think about what God is doing in Thessalonica. And not just that, he's holding them up as an example. Because when we hear testimonies, that's the other way we respond, isn't it? We think, man, if God can do that in them, maybe he can do that in us. It encourages us to trust God, to do his work in our lives. So Paul is holding up the Thessalonian church as examples. He's using it to lead the other churches in the region to worship and to trust. But the other thing that Paul points to in this passage, as he thinks about the fruit and as he boasts in their fruit, is that it proves something to Paul. Their fruit proves something to Paul. So look with me in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, this fruit is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. So Paul looks at their fruit, their steadfastness, their faith, and their love, and this is what he says. Your fruit is evidence that you are considered worthy of the kingdom of God. What does that that mean? To be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. I mean, we know, right? We, we talk about this every single week. There is only one way that we can be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. The only way that we can be considered worthy of the kingdom of God is by putting our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ because we cannot live the perfect life that we need to live in order to be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. The only way to be considered worthy is by faith in Jesus Christ. So what is Paul talking about here? What is he talking about here when he's saying that their fruit is evidence that they are worthy of the kingdom of God. Because Paul knows that it's by faith, by, by faith in the gospel alone. But he also knows something that Jesus said in John chapter 15. Let me read that for you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, what he's saying is, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. Then he explains this again. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As we think about that passage, that's a passage we think about a lot because it's powerful. 
In this passage, what Jesus is saying is, do you have fruit? Can you see the fruit of the Spirit growing in your life? If so, that is the, that is one way that we, sorry, that is the only, the only way that we can have fruit is if we are connected to the vine, if we are connected to Jesus Christ, if we are connected to the one who gives us the ability to bear fruit, the one who keeps us alive. So as Paul looks at the Thessalonians, he sees steadfastness. He sees growth in faith, increasing love, and he knows for certain that they are connected to, they are abiding in Jesus Christ. Because fruit is proof of true faith. The fruit is evidence of true faith. Now, in in the church, we get that mixed up quite often. Sometimes we give too much evidence or too much much emphasis to the fruit and sometimes it can start to feel like if you don't have or it feels like your fruit is what people are telling you earns your salvation but we know that that's not true what we know to be true is what uh, paul also says back in ephesians chapter 2 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is a gift from god not a result of works, so that no man may boast this is what's true but what we also know to be true is that when this happens, when you receive salvation, you are made a new creation. You are no longer who you used to be. And because of that, you have a new heart, you have new affections, new desires, and you have the Holy Spirit living within you. And so when you are saved by faith alone, fruit naturally pours out from you. Fruit is the natural outpouring of a true heart change. And so Paul looks at the Thessalonians and he says, I see fruit in you. I know for certain that you are abiding in, you are connected with, you have put your trust in Jesus Christ. And so for us today, I want to encourage you to ask yourself, do you see fruit in your life? You, you might be walking with Christ for five years, ten years, twenty years. As you look back over that time, can you see fruit growing in your life? It doesn't mean you're perfect. <laughs> It doesn't mean that you're complete in that process. You will not be complete in that process until the day that you are home with Jesus Christ. But can you look back and see a progression of growing fruit in your life? If so, I I praise God with you. And I want to encourage you to continue seeking, continue growing, continue seeking Him. Continue abiding in the vine so that you will continue to grow fruit. But if you look in your life and you don't see fruit, I want to encourage you to have a deep, long, hard talk with Jesus. Talk to him. Ask him to do his work in you, to grow deeper faith in you, so that you will know for certainty that you have a true, genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So the Thessalonians have been bearing fruit in their walk. Paul sees that, and that, because of that, he is sure that they have a genuine and true faith. And so what he does now is he, he changes his attention a little bit to focus on suffering, the suffering that they're going through. Because as we know from 1 Thessalonians as well, they're suffering persecution both religiously and politically. And in verse 5, really, he makes it really clear that their suffering is a direct result of their faith. He says this, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. They are suffering for the kingdom of God. That's what we see in verse 5. And so Paul sees their suffering, and he knows that they're struggling. 
Paul, of all people, knows what it's like to suffer for the gospel. And he knows that when we suffer for the gospel, our temptation is to make changes that will prevent us from, that, from continuing suffering. For us, we can be tempted to walk away from Jesus in order to protect us from continued suffering. Paul knows that's a temptation. So Paul continues to try to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. And to do so, he looks forward and he sees two things that will bring them comfort. Two things that we're going to see in verses 5 through 8 and then verses 9 through 10. So let me read verses 5 through 8 first. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So Paul looks off to the future, off to the day of Jesus Christ's return, and he's talking about a future hope. He's talking about the future day where God will establish justice in the world, where the wrongs will be made right, where Jesus will be established as king on the throne over his world. And he says, yes, Thessalonians, you're suffering right now. Yes, people of Alton, you are suffering right now. But you are not forgotten. You're not forgotten in your suffering. These sufferings will not last forever, ever, because someday Jesus Christ will come and all the wrongs will be made right. And so Paul looks at this, and he hopes to encourage the Thessalonians through it. Because in a just society, a good judge will do two things. Even today, in our society, if there is a good judge on the bench, he will do two things. He will free the innocent, and he will charge the guilty. That's what a good judge does. If a judge fails to free the uh, the innocent and charge the guilty, then he's perverting justice. He's lost sight of his one job, to judge properly. And what we know from Scripture is that our God is a good judge. Our God is a good and a perfect judge. Judge, and he will free the innocent. That's what Paul is focusing on right here. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of our faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, we are the innocent. Paul is giving encouragement to the Thessalonians by reminding them, you are innocent in the eyes of God. He will judge and you will be free agents. In fact, we are free now. <laughs> we are free now, but this freedom that we have in Christ will last us for eternity. And the other thing that a good and perfect judge will do is charge the guilty. Because our God is a good judge who will judge rightly, and he will repay with affliction those who afflict you and grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. Because Paul is suffering as well. So that's what we see in verses 5 through 8. Hope for the Thessalonians. Hope for the Thessalonians because they have been made clean. They have been made innocent in the eyes of God. And so they can count on a future day that they, when God judges the world, will be proven innocent. Now let's go on to verses 7, second half of 7, that all the way down to the end of 10, beginning with when the Lord Jesus is revealed. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, they, talking about the guilty, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, 
because our testimony to you is believed. So on that day when Jesus returns, when he comes again, he will judge rightly. And he will judge rightly between those who follow him and those who have denied him. Because people who do not have an interest in a relationship with Jesus Christ, they're going to get what they want. People who don't want to be close with the Lord, to have a relationship with him for eternity, will be without relationship with Christ. Our just Lord will give them what they want, this separation. And he says in this passage that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now again, Paul points back to this reality of judgment. And, you know, we, we do long for the day for all wrongs to be right. We do long for all sin to be gone. But it's not the only thing we feel when we read that passage. I know it's not for me. For me and probably for you as well, this passage to hear about judgment is just really hard to hear still. Because yes, we hope in this future day of judgment and of coming justice, but it hurts to hear that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Doesn't that just break your heart? I hope it does because I think it breaks Jesus' heart as well. Because Jesus is God, the good father and the righteous judge. Jesus cannot let sin go unpunished. But as the loving father, he loves the people he created. And I think that's why in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, what we're reading in this passage is that Jesus, in his mercy, is patiently putting off this day of judgment. He is putting it off towards a future day. So that as many as possible can hear the gospel and respond to it. God doesn't want any to perish. He longs for every single person to know the gospel, to respond to to the gospel, to be washed clean as snow. And for us, this is a charge. For us, this is a charge because the point is this. Even though we do find hope in the knowledge of coming justice, we will also work and fight to share the gospel in the dying world. Is this the way we feel about the people who are living around us? Do we believe in reality that this day of judgment is coming? Because if so, be free. We have a job to do. My prayer for our church is that we would long to see people come to Jesus in the same way that Jesus longed for people that come to know him. That we would not overlook the dying people around us, but that we would beg and plead so that many sons would be brought to glory. That we would build relationships with those around us. That we would pray for the people around us. That we would pray for opportunities, and when those opportunities come, be bold in proclaiming the gospel, offering them the only anecdote, antidote, to, to sin and to death. May we be a church. My prayer is that we would be a church that longs to bring the gospel to the people that we love, to the friends and the family around us who work to make relationships with the people who don't know Christ so that we can offer them this hope. We long for this to happen in our community. So I want to challenge you 
Who is it in your life that you love, that you have a relationship with, that God has put you in contact with so that you can share the gospel with them? Who is it in your life? Is it a coworker or a neighbor, a brother or a sister? Because our desire and Jesus' desire is that every single person hear this gospel and respond with faith. And now as we move into the last two verses of this passage, Paul ends with prayer. He ends this passage with prayer, and in so doing, he draws us back to the main focus of this passage, to encourage and comfort the Thessalonians as they follow Christ. So let's read uh, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Now, the theme of 1 Thessalonians is continued in this passage to encourage the Thessalonians. But yet again, Paul here encourages them, saying this, become worthy, fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. What he's saying is continue to grow and live out this walk as you follow Christ. But also in this passage, what he's saying is he reminds the Thessalonians that they're not alone in this process. Rather, what he says is, that our God may make you worthy. That he will fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And we remember, yes, we are the ones who long to live holy lives, but no, we do not do that work on our, on our own. We have brothers and sisters beside us. We have leaders above us. But most importantly, we have a God who gives us the power, who gives us the Holy Spirit, who gives us the ability to live holy lives. And so God does this, and he does it in us. Uh, and as we come into verse 12, this final passage, we see that in doing this, he points to himself. I'll explain what I mean. Look in verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he ends with the gospel of grace. He ends by saying this, because of what Jesus did on the cross, because he took our sins and died in our place, someday we will be glorified when he comes again to bring us back to him. And all of this, in all of this, he does this so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified. In other words, the work that Jesus Christ has done, it's for our good and it's for God's glory. We think so much about the our good part. We think so much about salvation, and rightly we should, because we have received life, and that's no small thing to overlook. But we have to remember that the reason that God gives us salvation is one, because he loves us, but two, because he wants to make his own name great. And that's an amazing mission for us as well, to give God the glory that, that he deserves, and to remember that the work that he does in us is for our good, but it's also for his that's what we do when we worship. We give the glory to God. We, we tell him of who he is. We tell him of how great he is. And as God does this work of salvation, of justification, of sanctification, of adopting, and of someday glorifying us, bringing us back to heaven, we can find comfort and hope and peace in this. We also praise him and glorify him for who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. Okay, pray with me. Heavenly Father, you, you are worthy. You are worthy of our praise. You, you are worthy 
of praise, not just because of what you've done for us, but just simply because of who you are. And Lord, we are a community of people who come together to worship you because of who you are. That you are not a weak God, you are a powerful God. You are a just God, you are a loving God. And so, Father, as we go out into our towns today, I pray that uh, we would have this message, this idea that you inserted into this passage of hope ringing in our ears, that we would remember that we have been delivered from your judgment because of what Jesus has done on the cross, but also that we would be encouraged to share the gospel with the people around us, that we'd be encouraged to share the gospel with those we love. Because like you, Father, we do not desire that any should perish. Lord, we love you and we need you to encourage us in our sufferings and encourage us out to share this gospel with the Lord, with the world. So Lord, we love you and we praise you. You are our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.